Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is one of Deep State Radio's Briefs and debriefs. Hello and welcome to another of Deep State Radio's one-on-one conversations, a part of our National Security Magazine series. With me today is Ambassador Wendy Sherman, one of America's most distinguished diplomats and author of a book that came out this fall called Not for the Faint of Heart. Um, uh, It is a pleasure to have you here, Uh, Wendy. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be with you, David. Uh, So let's talk about the book a little bit um, because it does connect to the news in some direct ways and some indirect ways. Um, Let me start with one of the ones that may seem a little more indirect to some people, but I think one of the things that's terrific about the book is telling the story of how you got to where you are. Um, And that's not just a story of, I think, some unexpected turns for you in the course of your life to, 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 to being a, one of the country's foremost diplomats, but also a story that is typical in many respects to uh, to that of any woman who has gone into an environment that has been traditionally uh, dominated by men. Uh, you were the first woman to be the Undersecretary of State for uh, Political Affairs. Um, uh, and I, I, I recall in... Um, in, in reading part of the book, uh, as you were being considered for that job, uh, there were people who, um, you know, accused you of being, you know, tough, which, it, you know, when you're referring to a guy, tough isn't usually used as, 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 a, as, a, as a critique. But, you know, with a woman, it means, you know, oh, she's, she's not as compliant as we would like her to be, I guess. And I, I thought maybe we could start there. Oh, thank you. Um, I think one of the things that I try to convey in the book um, is that I wish everyone, uh, women and men, an unexpected life because the best things have happened for me uh, when I least expected them. And certainly when I was a teenager, no one would have expected that I would end up a nuclear negotiator sitting across from Iranians or North Koreans. So I really wish that for everyone. Your point about women is especially true, of course, because particularly if we choose to have children, uh, our lives are going to be unexpected. Um, Often, uh, if we can financially, uh, we want to stay home at least for a little bit. Um, Oftentimes, women can't financially um, in most households in our country, even in our country. Uh, And so they go to work and feel guilty all of the time, trying to be both a good mother and uh, a good uh, worker. Um, I think this is more and more true for fathers as well. And so I think what I try to give people a sense of in the book is that we have to find ways 
to integrate both what we do in our work life and our home life, uh, as opposed to balance them. They really ought to become one, and that's one of the great challenges. When I was asked to be the Undersecretary of Political Affairs, uh, both Secretary Clinton and Cheryl Mills, her chief of staff, uh, expressed uh, concerns that had been raised that I was tough, that I wasn't a team player. Uh, and I, I'm never quite sure where exactly that came from, but I do think it's not atypical. And indeed, Secretary Clinton and Cheryl Mills have both been called tough, uh, too assertive, aggressive, um, not a team player. Uh, so uh, it was a rather interesting uh, circumstance to be seen in that way, but uh, sadly not unusual. I think I would urge women to embrace what they need to do to be assertive, uh, to get to where they want to go, uh, to use power in good and productive ways. Um, it's important. Well, I think one of the things that comes to me out of the book, um, and maybe it's born out of that experience to some to some extent, is the degree to which character is associated with diplomatic success, also diplomatic technique. Some people are listeners, some people are talkers, some people are very empathetic, some people are better at being tough. Um, some people, and I, I won't name names, but we'll get to him later, um, so have no, no, no empathy whatsoever, and and as a consequence, no sort of aptitude for diplomacy. Um, but as you were, you know, getting your sea legs, and 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 you've you've gone through several rounds of of dealing with these things. To what extent do you think the toughening up that you that you faced along the way, uh, the the setbacks that you faced? Uh, professionally at different points or personally ended up playing a role in how you dealt first with the North Koreans and later with the Iranians? I think very much so. Um, two of the points that are really essential to the book is first that each of us is most powerful when we are our authentic selves. We, we really can't be who we aren't. And if we try to be, we're usually less successful. Now, that person you were speaking of is his authentic self, uh, and that has given him some success. Unfortunately, uh, I think uh, his goals, his objectives, uh, and his way of being is not good for our democracy uh, in the medium to long term. Uh, it might be good for his own personal uh, means in the short term, the immediate term, uh, but we can talk more about that later. So I do think it's important to be authentically who you are, because that's really where your power comes from. And I think for each of us, um, we gain from our experiences. So the book is divided into chapters about courage, about letting go times when things fail, just don't work. The Mideast in national security and foreign policy being the most obvious, where every president comes in just sure they're going to finally unlock the puzzle and bring peace to the Middle East and uh, see setback after setback, many that are unplanned, obviously, um, assassinations, wars, um, uprisings that just brook no control over circumstances. And you have to wait until uh, pieces come together in a ripeness that allows for progress. Uh, so I think that 
Uh, I talk about that letting go. I talk about finding common ground, which we do in our personal relationships uh, to uh, be able to get somewhere. And we have to professionally uh, to be successful. And certainly as a negotiator, you have to find common ground, uh, how you build a team to achieve your objectives, how we all have to persist uh, to get something done. Uh, the Iran negotiation, the uh, Europeans began it in the early 2000s, and I uh, negotiated with Iran for four years. Uh, so these things take persistence. That doesn't mean patience, which is quite a different thing. Sometimes you have to get quite impatient uh, to push things along. And then uh, every once in a while, uh, you get to success. Underlying all of that is the first chapter of the book, which is about courage. Uh, because to do very difficult things in life takes courage. Uh, I talk about that in my own life, uh, where I learned about courage. And the reality is that when you do hard and difficult things and have the courage to do them, they usually cost you something, whether that is uh, politically, uh, professionally, uh, in economic terms, or in status. Uh, but if it's the right thing, uh, it's worth doing. You know, the point you make, I, I, you know, I guess we get to a certain point in our lives and we're able to look back and determine, you know, the, the lessons that are most important. But one of the lessons that seems most important to me is this one that you make about authenticity. It's true for writers. It's true for performers. It's also true for diplomats. And there's this kind of um, fallacy that a diplomat is a liar, that a diplomat pretends um, and is all facade. Um, but of course, when you're dealing with a high-level negotiation, while of course you hold some cards close to your vest, at the end of the day, the key skill of a diplomat is dealing with other people, connecting with them, and above all, earning their trust. Um, and you know, you've you've worked with one person who you know, to me, um, has been a great lesson in this. Um, and and that's Madeleine Albright, who was the first woman to, to serve as Secretary of State. But Madeleine, Madeleine is herself at all times, you know, and, and, uh, uh, and, and, and frankly, the, the more she moves forward through her career, the more blunt and direct she is. But I think that that works to her benefit. And, I, you know, I've seen a lot of diplomats who are covering something up or pretending who 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 fail for that reason. Yeah, I think the authenticity point is quite central and quite crucial. I would say, though, David, it's really not about gaining trust that that takes a long time. It is about in negotiations, at least having respect for the other side, that they have interests. Uh, they have objectives. You try to find common ground uh, so that you all are moving towards the same end. Uh, but, you know, I don't trust the Iranians. The Iranians don't trust me. I certainly don't trust the leaders of North Korea. They're never going to trust me. But you try to find a way to respect the interests of the other side, know who they are, and find your way forward. Madeleine Albright, of course, is tremendously exactly who she is. Um, and one of the lessons that she taught me uh, is an important one about power, which is when you sit across a negotiating table, 
uh, in the kinds of ways she did and that I have been able to do, I'm less Wendy Sherman or a woman, or in my case, an American Jew, I am more the United States of America. And that has been a very powerful role to have. Uh, And so what I learned from her really importantly is to embrace the power of your role and what comes with it, not to abuse that power or to overstate it or to overreach with that power, uh, but to understand what it is and to make use of it uh, toward a good end. Yeah, no, I think you put it much better than I do. What I meant by trust was that sense of respect, the sense that you can actually get something done together, uh, even if even if. Even if you are skeptical of each other, I, you know, I guess as 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 you look at the at the world scene at the moment, um, it's striking the degree to which two of the things you've worked on are 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 central, but more striking the degree to which it seems like the objective of the current administration is to actually undo both of them, um, and not because they have a better plan, or not because. Um, the, 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 the work wasn't, um, uh, successful work, but, but, but because of their, you know, a, a personal animus or a political agenda, let's talk a little bit about Iran because, um, it seems, you know, as we look forward that the Trump administration is putting, you know, building pressure on Iran more and more central uh, to its plans for the next couple of years. It's one of the issues in which Pompeo and Bolton seem to be aligned. It's their rationale for staying close to Saudi Arabia despite the atrocity of the Khashoggi killing and the atrocities in Yemen. Um, uh, and I'm just, as you sit there and you watch and you spent and invested so much time in that deal, um, beyond being galling, I'm wondering... You know, how you think this approach is being viewed by the people you dealt with in Iran? Well, you know, I don't think it was a shock to any of us that the president pulled out of the deal because he said all throughout the campaign he was going to. And there were some people in his administration early on who tried to hold on to it. And then they departed the administration. And it was only a matter of days until he did indeed pull out of the deal. And although, as you say, it's galling and it's uh, personally uh, a loss, um, it is the greatest loss for the national security of our country and uh, the security of the world. And the curious thing here is I really, truly don't understand the Trump administration's strategy. Uh, Yes, they're trying to put pressure on Iran, uh, even at the cost of our alliance with Europe, uh, which seems very short-sighted. They have... Uh, lined up uh, with Saudi Arabia, uh, an important relationship, but one that should not be without standards or expectations uh, when, in fact, uh, someone is a partner or an ally. Uh, And the Khashoggi killing and the Yemeni war are, as you say, so horrific uh, that um, Saudi Arabia ought to be held accountable uh, if You can't tell your friends when they're doing wrong. Uh, You're certainly not going to be able to get your enemies uh, to change their behavior. Uh, That maximum pressure effort on Iran also is not producing the results because 
we're trying to do this alone and not with others. Uh, we're trying to bludgeon others into enforcing unilateral sanctions that we've put on. And we have tremendous economic power to be able to do that. Uh, but over time, what will happen as a result of that is that uh, ultimately people will say, well, let's not have the dollar be the reserve currency of the United States because around sanctions, it gives the United States too much power. So let's get a basket of currencies. Uh, let's no longer trade oil in dollars. Um, let's look elsewhere and we'll do things bilaterally. And the next time the United States wants us to operate multilaterally, well, we'll just tell them they never do. So why should we? Um, we're, we're really cutting off our nose to spite our face. And we have not uh, moved any further in successfully pushing Iran uh, back from its malign behavior in the region, nor are we any closer to Middle East peace. Um, so I'm not quite sure what this strategy is going to accomplish. Uh, the cost will be enormous uh, as it proceeds for our forward, already is. And at the bottom of it all uh, are our values. What do we stand for? Who are we? What kind of a country are we? Uh, and what do we expect of our friends, let alone our enemies? Well, let's just talk about that. I'd like to look at a couple of elements of this thing in a little more detail, but let's talk about our friends. We're putting our friends in a position where uh, they want to honor their agreement with Iran, and they are moving into a block, and we are in a different block. We are kind of in a block now with some of the Gulf states and maybe tacitly with Israel in strong opposition to Iran, but we are divided from our closest allies. And of course, that's compounded by the president's comments on NATO, the president's performance at the World War I memorial, the president's embrace of Putin, the president's... Aaron. Last... Aaron. Pardon me? And tariffs. Well, yeah, and tariffs and, and so on. And so... We, you know, we find ourselves, it, it's not just that we're shifting our position towards Iran, but it seems that there's a broader strategic consequence of a, of a kind of a realignment within our core alliances. Uh, that may indeed be happening. We have thrown Europe into the arms of Russia and China over Iran. How can that be possibly be good? Uh, and we are in Asia uh, setting up the potential of a new kind of Cold War where we are asking countries to sign up with China or sign up with us. And it shouldn't be that way. The United States and China are economically coupled, whether we like it or not. And what we ought to be doing is working with others to ensure a fair playing field uh, so that China has to play by international rules. And then we should outcompete them. Uh, we can compete with anybody. I believe in the resilience, the energy, the innovative spirit, uh, the entrepreneurship of America. Um, so we should work with others to get that fair playing field, insist that China play on it, uh, and then uh, compete like mad. I'd like to go to Asia in a second, but one one last comment. As we look at the 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 way this administration has played um, Iran, we we also see how some in the region have played this administration, and I think 
uh, at some point, people will look and say, oh, the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Israelis, others, they weren't so comfortable with Obama. They embraced Trump. Uh, they embraced Trump extremely closely. And then they saw that Trump was not going to challenge them on a bunch of things, and they started to take advantage of that. And it seems to me that there is a prospect of some backlash, that they 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 made the mistake of lashing themselves too closely to one party in the American system. And when the Democrats take over the House, or should a Democrat win in 2020, they're all going to be seen as political opponents um, uh, in addition to everything else, or they will have bred some animus. Um, and and it, it seems strategically quite short-sighted on the part of those countries. I agree, it's short-sighted on, on part of those countries. And some of that, uh, you know, paying the piper may come sooner rather than later. In the case of um, the Saudis, we even hear from People like Bob Corker, who will be leaving, but Lindsey Graham, who uh, just today when we are taping this uh, program, uh, said that uh, until he can get a briefing from the intelligence community uh, from Agena Haspel about the Saudi tape and what the intelligence community believes happened uh, to uh, Jamal Khashoggi, uh, he won't be there on any vote of consequence. Uh, because, you know, I don't know about you, David, but I can't think of a time when I went up about a major national security issue that the intelligence community was not there to brief, because quite frankly, many members of Congress have greater trust in the intelligence community because they believe it's a non-political or apolitical assessment uh, than they do from policymakers. So uh, I think we may be moving to the place you're outlining faster than the administration uh, and uh, the countries with whom they've aligned uh, more quickly uh, than one might imagine remains to be seen, uh, but it is more than an interesting time. Yeah, no, and it's also, I mean, it's outrageous. The notion, this administration um, fears a lot of things, apparently, um, refugees, people of color, women, and so forth. But but the thing they seem to fear the most are, are facts. And, you know, if somebody dares to have a fact-based analysis, such as uh, Gina Haspel has and the intelligence community has, then you end up with a situation like you have today where neither she nor Dan Coates were invited to comment um, on this. Uh, and you left it to uh, Secretary Pompeo to sketch out uh, an administration uh, position that was, you know, has been from the beginning based on overstated or distorted numbers, overstated nature of relationship, overstated potential consequences. In fact, you know, you mentioned that as we tape this, this is this is what's going on. Um, yesterday, um, Senator Chris Murphy, to give you a, a, the, our listeners a sense of the debate, tweeted out Pompeo's basic case is that we have to love Saudi Arabia because Iran sucks. Um, this is this is a senator. This is a third grade analysis of the Middle East. <laughs> you know, it's it. We've really come to a place. That, I don't know about you, but I find it hard to believe sometimes where we are. Well, I think we all do, and one of the things that's most important is not to ever normalize what's going on, to really call it as it is, and. 
You know, one of the things that um, people much wiser about uh, the investigations that are going on than I am often speak to is what it seems at times that what the president cares most about is money and what will deliver that money uh, to our country or to him personally or to his family personally. And uh, money is important and the strength of our economy is certainly the bedrock of our power. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, money has little meaning unless it is used for good. And uh, whether that's to help a family survive or a country defend itself, uh, it has its power when it is used for good. And so I think there's a lot we will see in the days and years ahead, particularly with a uh, Democratic House, uh, so that we go back to some checks and balances in our system. Um, we will find out that um, the objectives here are small ball, quite frankly, uh, if it's all about money. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe very uh, family oriented. Um, let's spend a couple minutes. We we don't have unlimited time here, but let me sp- let's spend a couple minutes going back to. Uh, another area with which you are uh, very familiar, and that is North Korea, which has itself gone through quite a quite a, a saga here. And, you know, I, I, when you talk about money, it made me think of the fact that you know Trump's you know promise to Kim Jong Un repeatedly was North Korea will be a very rich country. We're going to make you rich. We're going to build hotels. We're going to you know he was he he sort of viewed Kim Jong Un as an analog for himself and was trying to talk about the things that Kim Jong Un might want. But of course the whole time even he's a, go on. Even did a video, even did a video showing him what uh North Korea might look like with uh Trump condominiums. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, you know, he, um, like a lot of people, seems to have underestimated the guy he called Little Rocket Man. And the whole time that Trump has been, you know, stating to the world that he has revamped the relationship and his uh, maximum pressure policy had sort of teed up the Nobel Prize that he would accept in no time at all. The North Koreans have been building missiles, um, uh, building additional nuclear warheads, increasing their capability, uh, not doing what they said they would do, or doing things that they didn't say they wouldn't do. Um, and you know, it all looks very familiar, I would imagine, to somebody like you who has uh, lived through several cycles of this North Korean conversation. Am yes, I right? I think, you know, I, I tried to imagine when the president said he loved Kim Jong-un, if I had ever said that, or if Madeleine Albright had ever said that about a brutal dictator, what the consequences would have been. I just can't even imagine it. Um, well, it, it's, uh, and well, and I'm friendly with your husband, Bruce, and I would have to say, I would feel terrible for him if you said you loved Kim Jong-un and made a public text. <laughs> indeed. Uh, indeed. So, you know, I supported the president meeting with Kim Jong-un in Singapore uh, because these were two men who thought they were the only ones who mattered. 
Uh, in Kim Jong-un's system, he is the only one who pretty much matters. He has to deal with his military, but if he doesn't like you, he kills you. In our system, we were bereft of checks and balances, and even though the president was the only one elected president, that is true, we do have checks and balances. We are a democracy, so other people do matter. But nonetheless, the president really sees himself as all-powerful. And so I thought, well, maybe they'll have a breakthrough. But I said, to have that breakthrough, you have to have a team ready, a strategy, a plan, uh, ready to hit the ground running uh, with follow-up. And none of that, of course, occurred. Um, I think the administration is trying to regroup. They've brought on a special envoy, Steve Began, who's a very capable professional, uh, not well familiar with Asia, but he's doing his homework. Uh, But he faces a challenge I never faced as a negotiator. I always knew whether it was North Korea or Iran uh, or Syria or anything else that I worked on, even, uh, you know, Uh, working out issues after uh, Hurricane Mitch in Central America, lots of different things I've done, Cuban negotiations. I always knew that the president had my back because we had a policy process. I knew what the right and left margins were, but I don't think that Steve Began will ever be sure that the rug won't be pulled out from under him. Uh, And that's an impossible position uh, for a negotiator. And negotiations with North Korea, as you point out, David, are so hard, much, much harder than the Iran negotiation, because not only is this a hermit kingdom locked up and away from the international system, uh, but uh, it is really more a cult uh, than a country. Uh, And uh, Kim Jong-un just has to rely on China uh, to keep his economy going, really not anybody else. Uh, So it's quite a different circumstance. And of course, and most importantly, he has nuclear weapons and the means to deliver them. Um, and, you know, the threat is growing. What do you, I mean, Pompeo's said again today something to the effect of, well, I look forward to continuing the discussions with them at some point in the not too distant future. What, is, what yeah, do you think the Kim Jong un game is? Just play out Trump and wait till the next guy? Or how, do, how does it well, go? I- I think that we'll probably hear some more threats from Kim Jong-un sooner or later. Uh, I think that uh, he really wants sanctions lifted. Uh, I think that's this week's demand, more important to him than ending of the Korean War with a peace treaty or peace agreement. We have a further problem in that uh, the South Koreans very much want to move forward on engagement. Uh, They believe that that engagement will build confidence and make it possible to get the more difficult things done. Uh, so they've just gotten an exemption from the sanctions to do a study on North-South Railroad, uh, which I understand why they want to do that. Uh, but it is obviously heads in a different direction than what President Trump is trying to do. And I think that one of the challenges for the administration is to really get aligned uh, with uh, our partner and ally, uh, South Korea, and with Japan, and to the extent we can with China, or there is no way to have a successful strategy uh, in North Korea. Well, you get to, you, you make another point, and I will wrap up shortly after this, but the, the, the point is how central China is to all of this. Um, and just as it seems you know, counterproductive to get into 
trade wars with our European allies at 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 a, at a moment like this. Uh, we are locked in a trade struggle with the Chinese at just the moment. We need them uh, to be helpful on North Korea, and that circles back to your point. You know, I've written a couple of books on how the NSC process works, and in this administration, it just doesn't seem to work. It doesn't seem to happen. The National Security Advisor doesn't want a process. The president doesn't want advice. He says he has his gut um, and he doesn't need advice because his gut is so um, good. Um, uh, And uh, setting aside all the jokes we could make about his gut, we've got a broken system that is not producing the kind of coordination you need in policy and and that seems to me to be a vital tool of a negotiator as well. Am I correct? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I joke about how uh, all of the people I had to consult with and work through policy with, starting with our own government, Congress, uh, all of the members of the negotiating team, all of the other countries that were part of the negotiation, outside groups, other countries who had big interests, Israel, of course, the Gulf states. And yes, then I negotiated with Iran. It it is a very complex process uh, when done right of circles of consultation because you want to try to get everybody on board uh, so that an agreement is durable and sustainable. Uh, And that policy process begins inside the U.S. government and is absolutely crucial. And as you say, uh, this one uh, is all about the White House uh, from start to finish. Um, all about the president. Uh, And as I'm sure you know from traveling around the world, uh, people think if they haven't talked to the president, they don't know where we're headed. And even when they talk to the president, they're not sure that the next day he won't tweet out something different. You know, look, where China's concerned, I think we all would agree that China isn't playing fair, uh, that China needs to change some of its habits and ways of being in the world, particularly around trade. Uh, as well as uh, their buildup of the military, the South China Sea, and I I could go on and on, human rights, of course. But how you do that is essential because all administrations have to walk and chew gum and do seven other things simultaneously. Uh, And so I would have worked with our European allies and others around the world to take China to the WTO and to push to make that system work better, Uh, There are other tools that we have that we have used successfully in the past to get China to make change. Uh, I would have outcompeted with China, worked with countries who feel like Chinese loans to them have been abusive uh, to get them to push back uh, on China and China's practices. Uh, There are some countries that are no longer investing in China uh, because of what's required. Uh, One can organize the world to respond in an appropriate way, while at the same time trying to get China on board on North Korea because it would be in their own national security interest to do so. Um, So this administration not only doesn't have a process, but doesn't have a process that has a 360-degree view uh, so that you can do multiple things simultaneously, sometimes even things that seem mutually exclusive. Uh, find where you can work with Russia and at the same time uh, push them back uh, from what they're doing in Ukraine, uh, sanction the hell out of them uh, for that uh, behavior, 
Um, you have to be able to do many things, all of which aren't in the same direction all at the same time. Yeah, good, uh, good analysis, good, good advice. Uh, so we're coming to the end here, and I'd like to end by going back and saying that your book is called Not for the Faint of Heart, Lessons in Courage, Power, and Persistence. Those who listen to the various podcasts here on Deep State Radio Network are people who are interested in foreign policy and national security. Um, and so I think they're an audience that would benefit from this book. Many of them are are younger um, yeah, we'd like to say we're not your father's world affairs publication. We do most of the stuff that we do on podcasts and live events and other kinds of, uh, web-based, uh, platforms. But, um, you know, you must, I mean, you teach at Harvard, you encounter people on a regular basis. Um, you must encounter a lot of young aspirants who are interested in this field, um, you know what is what is the advice you give them because you um like many of the people who i know who ended up playing vital roles in foreign policy and and maybe i say this cuz the first 10 years of my career i was a theater director um right. uh, uh started out doing something else and yep. and ended so, up working their way there so so what what's right. the right path or is there no right path I think there's no right path. What I do say to young people is get a set of skills uh, and then use that set of skills in whatever wonderful opportunities come your way. So you were a theater director. That gave you a set of skills about being able to imagine what needed to be on the stage and how scenes ought to be played out and how to structure that play and how it should be paced and moved along. You had to organize a whole variety of parts uh, from the scenery to the actors, uh, to the lighting, uh, to the publicity to make it all become a whole and be successful. And you took that set of analytical and execution skills and moved it into national security and foreign policy. For me, I have a master's in social work, largely as a community organizer, also clinical skills, which are very helpful with dictators and, I jokingly say, members of Congress. Um, but as an organizer, I was taught and learned how to make use of power, how to look at a situation and see what all the various interests were, how to bring those interests together into a common goal toward an objective and how to organize to reach that objective. Uh, and so I've used that skill set uh, in whatever I've done along the way from uh, child welfare to politics, uh, running campaigns and uh, being in the political world uh, to national security and foreign policy. Uh, many people in Washington, as you know, uh, David, uh, started out as lawyers. Uh, they've never really practiced law, but they've used that skill set uh, to be analytical, uh, to think ahead, uh, to imagine the possibilities. So get a skill set, and then, as I said earlier in this broadcast, I wish each of you an unexpected and very rich and rewarding life. Well, I wish everybody a life that is as interesting and as uh, substantive and meaningful for the rest of us as yours, the one you describe in Not for the Faint of Heart, which is a terrific book and strongly urge it. And we have a, a deep state 
Radio uh, Book Club, which has grown a lot, uh, and I recommend it to them as well. Uh, we hope you have you back sometime on some future episode of one of these podcasts. Uh, and for those of you who would like to uh, experience some of the other podcasts, some of the other work that we're doing, go to deepstateradionetwork.com. There you'll find Deep State Radio, the podcast, our new podcast based on the West Coast, which is called Washington for Beautiful People with Emily Brandwin, more one-on-ones, more uh, written content, um, and even in our swag store, a whole bunch of great Deep State Radio um, uh, products which help support what we're doing here, including, as of this week, for a limited time only, your Ministry of Snark Christmas Ornament, something you may want to give all your uh, family and friends there, Wendy. Anyway, thank you very much, Wendy, and thank you very much to everybody uh, out there uh, with Deep State Radio. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.